All right, if you have a Bible with you, let's open them together to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to pick up uh, our series where we have been looking at the prayers of the Apostle Paul and learning from these Spirit-inspired prayers uh, how we can pray better, uh, how we can pray in the fashion of the Apostle. And tonight we're going to hear Paul's prayer uh, that he offers on behalf of the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, the prayer itself is found in verses 11 and 12, uh, but I want us to get the context. I think it's important uh, that we understand what is uh, kind of prompting Paul in his praying, uh, that we understand uh, the framework of his prayers, because that's the framework we need as well. And so I want us to get the big picture uh, of what's leading Paul to this prayer. So I want us to read the first 12 verses, and uh, we'll look specifically tonight uh, at verses 3 through 12 and kind of zero in uh, on verses 11 and 12 for the prayer that Paul offers. So if you have your Bibles open, hear God's Word tonight, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, verses 1 through 12. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, in all your persecutions, and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless this evening the reading and the teaching of his word. Tonight, as we look at this particular prayer of the Apostle Paul, what I want us to look at is the eternal perspective of Paul's praying. The eternal perspective of Paul's praying. Uh, on July 4th in 1952, a young lady by the name of Florence Chadwick uh, was 33, 30, 34 years old. Uh, she was an avid swimmer. And she was attempting on this day to become the very first woman to swim the 21 miles across the Catalina Channel 
from Catalina Island to the coast of California. As she set out on this uh, adventure, this goal, uh, on that particular day, the weather was challenging. It was uh, cool. Uh, the wash, water, ocean water, was ice cold, and uh, a marine fog had kind of set in thick, so much so that while she was swimming, she could barely even make out the support boats that were following along with her. Nevertheless, she was determined to achieve uh, the goal that she had set. And uh, at daybreak, she went forward with uh, the task and uh, was expecting the fog to lift at any time. However, uh, hour after hour she swam, the fog had never relented. It stayed present and stayed thick. Uh, as she got on into the, the swim, uh, those alongside of her in the support boats were encouraging her to keep going, uh, trying to, to lift her spirits, uh, and kept going she did. But then she got to the 15-hour point. Could you imagine swimming for 15 hours in ice-cold uh, ocean water? Uh, she got to the 15-hour point, and then she began to doubt her ability to finish. Her trainer, her mother, who were in the boats beside her, were still trying to encourage her, but uh, she cried out to them, I don't know that I can make it, I don't know that I can finish. And at the 15-hour and 55-minute mark, she stopped. And she asked those in the support boats to take her out of the water. The fog was still thick, and because of this, she could not see the coastline, so she had no idea where she was. But she soon found out that she was less than a mile from the coast. Less than a mile from finishing what she set out to accomplish. If she had stayed in the water just a few minutes longer, she would have reached land. Uh, the day following, she gave a news uh, report. And she told a reporter who was inquiring about uh, the events of that day, look, I'm not excusing myself and I'm not blaming others, but if I could have seen the shore, I know I could have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I know I could have made it. We often think of prayer, rightly so, as a daily means of grace, as something that we practice day in and day out, a daily discipline of our faith. And, and that's exactly what prayer is. Uh, we should pray daily. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, we should pray always. Uh, Jesus as well taught us uh, to pray for daily bread. So it's not wrong that we have this daily focus on prayer. But while prayer is a daily discipline, and it includes praying for daily needs, we also need to remember that it's a, a means by which we can look to eternity. That prayer has not only a daily focus, but an eternal focus. And when we keep this eternal focus as part of the daily discipline of praying, it helps us to see the shore of heaven. It helps us to see the, the coastline of eternity. And like Florence Chadwick, if we can see the coast, we can keep going. We can keep swimming spiritually despite the thick fog of the world that is oftentimes surrounding us. If we can keep eternity in view, heaven in view, 
it makes a great difference in our spiritual life. Uh, the Puritans would often remark, uh, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Let us always view life through the lens of the eternal life still to come. And tonight, as we look at Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian believers here in 2 Thessalonians 1, he has this eternal perspective in mind. He has eternity in view. It's what's propelling him in praying for the Thessalonians. And so I want us to look at this eternal focus, this eternal perspective of Paul's prayer tonight. And, and as we've said in the study, uh, it's my hope that Paul's prayers will shape our prayers. Because we know that Paul is praying rightly. He's praying in accordance with the, the Spirit, because these are Spirit-inspired prayers. We talked about this Sunday uh, as we were studying in Mark, the perspective that Jesus gives us on Scripture is that uh, it is uh, both human and divine in its composition. Uh, the Spirit of God is directing the human authors who uh, wrote down these words. And so as Paul is recording the prayers that he is praying, they are breathed out by God. These are Holy Spirit prayers. And so we do well to learn from them and shape our prayer life accordingly. And I think one of the great struggles that we have in our prayer life, it's a struggle in mine, is that we simply see today when we pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, Jesus taught us pray for daily bread. But when we think about today, so often we just think about the material. We just think about the physical. We just think about the earthly. And what Paul is going to teach us tonight is, yes, we can think about today, but we can think about today from an eternal perspective. When we keep the shoreline of heaven in our prayers, it helps us think about the spiritual focus that we need to have. It helps us to, to lift our eyes off the horizon of this world and look to the world that's to come and to pray uh, in a fashion uh, that would pre pre prepare us for that. So tonight, as we look at this passage of Scripture, there's, there's three thoughts uh, that I, I just want to lift out of the text for us tonight to help us understand Paul's eternal perspective on prayer. All right, number one, I want you to see Paul's approach. Paul's approach. Uh, this is verses 3 through 10. So Paul gives us a, a lot of introduction before he actually gets to the prayer in verses 11 and 12. But this approach is the framework, it's the mindset that Paul has that leads him uh, into the prayer that he offers. And I think we, we need to understand this because it's going to help us understand his prayer. So there's two things that Paul builds his approach on uh, in praying for the Thessalonians. Two things. First, he mentions their spiritual progression. Their spiritual progression. This is verses 3 and 4. Paul begins by saying, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The love of everyone of you for one another is creasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all afflictions that you are enduring. So this is kind of the, the runway that Paul is going to you know, run down before he lifts off in, in prayer. This is the, the pad that is leading him to the launching point. And he says, I can always give thanks to God for you. Now, Paul's not explicitly offering a prayer of thanksgiving here, although giving thanks is certainly a big part of praying. 
We see Paul do that many times, but here he's simply saying, this is why I can thank God for you. These are the things that I see happening in your life. And Paul zeroes in on the spiritual progression that they are making. Paul was moved to pray for the Thessalonians because of the spiritual growth that he saw happening in their life. Now think about that for a second. Paul was moved to pray for them because he saw good things happening in them. I think a lot of times we simply think about praying because bad things are happening or nothing is happening. But Paul kind of flips that on its head right here. He says, I'm praying for you, not because nothing is happening or bad things are happening. I'm praying for you even more because good things are happening in your life. God is at work, and I rejoice in that. And he's, he's going to pray that that would continue on. So Paul specifically here uh, is mentioning their sanctification, uh, their growth in Christ-likeness, them becoming mature in their faith. And again, it's a simple reminder here that our prayer life needs to keep the spiritual in focus. When you read the letter of 2 Thessalonians, it becomes comes clear pretty quickly uh, that the believers there in Thessalonica were facing a lot of persecution, a lot of hardships, a lot of difficulties. And so we can imagine all the things that they were struggling with and uh, maybe uh, physical needs that they would be experiencing because of this affliction and persecution. But Paul doesn't really mention any of that. I don't think he was unaware of that, and I don't think he prayed, didn't, did not pray for those things. I'm sure he probably did, and we'll see in a moment. In some regards, he does. But Paul's focus comes back to the spiritual. And again, I think it's an important reminder that we, we weigh the, or we take a look at the balances in our prayer life. How much time do we spend praying for spiritual needs, and how much time do we spend praying for physical needs? Again, it's not wrong to pray for physical things. But we need to make sure we're balancing it with spiritual things. The physical and the spiritual need, need, need to kind of weigh out. And if we, if we think about it rightly, and we let Scripture kind of guide us, many times the physical things that we're praying for can lead us to, the spirit, lead us to the spiritual things we need to be praying for. But Paul here is reminding us Hey, I'm going to pray for you because I see spiritual progression happening in your life. And he just, he highlights very quickly three areas where he saw God's grace at work in their lives and saw spiritual progress taking place. In verse 3, he says, I see increased faith. He says, your faith is growing abundantly. Paul says, I thank God for that. It's a reminder to us where faith comes from. That faith is not something that we muster up in ourselves, but it's something that, that God supplies to us. That's why we thank God for that. God, I thank you for the faith that is at work in the Thessalonian believers. It's growing. And Paul, Paul rightly recognizes that. Then he goes on and he says there's increased love. He says the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This is one of the chief hallmarks of the church. But there's a love for the brethren, a love for one another. And Paul says that's evident among you, and it's, it's increasing. So we're thinking about spiritual things that we can be praying for. These two are certainly uh, matters that we should consider. Lord, help my faith to increase. Let my faith grow. And Lord, help me to love the brothers better. Help me to love the church more and to let it increase. 
Not just stay stagnant, but to let it grow. Let it, let it abound. Let it flourish. So Paul says, I see these things happening. Your faith is increasing. Your love is growing. And then when he comes to, to verse 4, this is where we begin to see kind of the, 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 the thrust of what's happening in Thessalonica with the believers. Paul says, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, here it is, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul says, I see your growth in faith. I see it in love. And then here in verse 4, he says, I see it in steadfastness. He says, you guys are an example to the other believers because you're remaining steadfast in your walk, in your faith, despite the persecutions and the afflictions that you're facing. You are enduring. I think this is a, a good reminder to us that there's a difference between stamina and steadfastness. There's a difference between stamina and steadfastness. Paul recognizes that because of their faith, the Thessalonians aren't merely just getting through this, but they're getting through it with their faith. A lot of times when we face trials, when we face afflictions, and should we ever face persecution, we just want to pray, God, get me through this. Get this behind me. I'm ready for this to be over. But Paul understood that in those things, God was doing a work in the lives of his children, in the lives of the Thessalonians, and there was a steadfastness that was there. They were counting it joy. They were clinging to Christ. Uh, they, they weren't merely walking through this with stamina, but with a spirit-empowered steadfastness to hold on to Christ no matter what affliction or persecution they were facing. That'll change how you pray about your storms in life. It's no longer, God, just get me through this. It's, God, let me be steadfast in this. Let me abound in faith in this. Paul sees the spiritual progression of the Thessalonian believers, and it's going to lead him into prayer on their behalf. But there's another approach that Paul sees here, and this is really kind of where the lesson's going. He mentions here in verses 5 through 10, an eternal anticipation that he has. An eternal anticipation. So Paul's prayer lifts off, not only because of spiritual progression that he sees in the believers, but also because of an eternal look that he has. Paul looks at the current state of the affliction and persecution that they're facing through the lens of the coming kingdom. In verse 5, he says these things that are growing in them spiritually is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. When Paul uses the language of the kingdom of God there, he's, he's talking about the fullness of the kingdom, the realization of the kingdom. He's talking about the glorious finale of history that awaits every believer. The, the, the answered uh, prayer of your kingdom come. That's what Paul has in mind. He says, what I see happening in your life spiritually gives me great hope that you have a place in the kingdom of God, that you're worthy of that kingdom which is to come. 
Now, we need to be clear here. It's not their suffering. Uh, It doesn't earn them the right to enter the kingdom, but how they're suffering gives evidence that they will enter it. Everybody suffers in this world. This world is a broken, fallen world. Sin has impacted everything. The just and the unjust, they're all going to face suffering. But how you suffer gives great witness to what you believe. And Paul is saying here, there's great witness in how you're facing this persecution and affliction. You're enduring it with increased steadfastness, increased love, increased faith. And that leads me to believe that you've got a place in the kingdom. Paul would write in 2 Timothy 2, kind of an early hymn of the church, he connects these two things, that suffering for God leads to reigning with him. He says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrections and share in his sufferings. We don't like to think about suffering or talk about suffering or preach about suffering, uh, but suffering is a pretty big tool in the toolbox of our Heavenly Father. And by it, He does great work in our lives, and it fits us, if you will, for the kingdom that is to come. So Paul has this eternal perspective in mind. And now he's going he's to broaden that, and he's going to tell us uh, two things that he anticipates with great certainty that are going to take place when that kingdom comes. And, and this, is, this is Paul lifting his eyes to the shore of heaven. Two things he says that are going to happen. Number one, there'll be retribution for sinners. Retribution for sinners. In verse 6, he says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. I tell you, if you don't live with that in mind and pray with that in mind and keep that before you, you'll go crazy in this world. Because you'll begin to think and you'll begin to to live in such a way that you think nothing's going to be dealt with. I mean, could you imagine if we lived in this world and the wickedness and the evilness, the vileness that we see goes unpunished and undealt with? I, I read a news report today and it just, I mean, it just literally made me sick. Reported the man in Florida a day or two ago that shot his three young sons in his front yard. Seven, five, four. Put them in the front yard in execution style, killed them. Sat down on the steps with a rifle next to him and waited for the cops to show up. Oh my God. There's, there's no retribution that could satisfy such an act that man could provide. So if we don't live with this eternal perspective of a kingdom that is coming and when that kingdom is ushered in by the king who will bring it, there will be retribution for evildoers and sinners. 
We're going to have a hard time making it in this world. But Paul brings that up. He's going to pray for them with this eternal anticipation in mind that the people who are afflicting them now will one day get what they rightly deserve. That the God who is just to give judgment that they are in the kingdom is also just to deal with those who won't be brought into the kingdom. And when you look at the language that Paul uses here, it's not going to be a pleasant day for those who don't have faith in Christ when he comes. Paul says he's coming to repay with affliction. Let me, and I don't don't want to be irreverent here, but let me just give you modern day vernacular of verse 6. Since God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, when he comes, he's going to beat down those who have beaten down his own. He's coming to hand out some beatdowns when he returns. He's going to impart the affliction to them that they have imparted upon his own. It's a scary thing to be on that side of things. And Paul continues on, and he says he's going to come in flaming fire, and he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. I don't know that human language can capture what awaits those who will face the judgment when the king comes again. It really is terrifying. Just a a quick side note here. If you ever encounter someone who would like to argue with you that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New Testament, just let them read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And when we see him executing vengeance in the Old Testament against sinners who have stored up wrath against him, people say, well, that's not the God of the New Testament. This Jesus, he's entirely, no. He's the one who will come and will mete out this justice. And judgment. He will execute vengeance against those who have denied his gospel. He will make sure they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So Paul is going to pray with this, this view of eternity in mind that it will bring the retribution for sinners that they deserve. But on the other side of that coin, as Paul thinks about an eternal anticipation, he says there's vindication for the saints. This is glorious. Paul says the sinners will be damned. They'll be judged. The saints, they'll be refreshed. He says in verse 7 that when he comes, he will grant relief to you, that is to the believers who are afflicted, as well as to us. They'll face righteous judgment will enjoy righteous relief. Paul says, verse 10, when he comes on that day, he will be glorified in his saints and he will be marveled at among all who have believed. And Paul says, you can look forward to this vindication that God is just and he will grant relief to you for the affliction and the suffering that you have endured. 
And you can know that because you have believed our testimony. You have believed the gospel that we have proclaimed. So this is where Paul kind of zeroes in on this, this eternal focus in his praying. He's seen spiritual progression in the believers, and he's brought that to an eternal anticipation, and now he's going to go into his prayer. So there's Paul's approach, and then we look at his prayer in verses 11 and 12, and I, I simply gave it the, the point, Paul's asking. Paul's asking. Here's what he is asking for. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two petitions Paul asks with eternity in mind. Number one, he prays that the believers in Thess Thessalonica would experience a worthiness in their calling a worthiness in their calling. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Worthy of his calling. This is a repeated phrase and theme in Paul's writings. He uses it in Philippians 1.27, where he exhorts the Philippian believers to live their lives in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. He comes back to it, to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4, verse 1, that they would walk in a manner worthy of being a Christian. And when Paul uses this language that they would be worthy of his calling, what he's, what he's saying is that they would live up to the gospel call that has been at work in their lives. Paul is not saying you are worthy to receive this call. None of us are. But because we have received it, because we have heard the gospel call, because we have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ, we then pray that we would live out that call faithfully. That's what Paul is praying for them. Let me live out faithfully what it means to be a Christian. I wonder, is that a prayer that you offer each day? Lord, today, as you meet my daily needs, as you give daily bread, as you address these physical needs, would you help me to live worthy of this calling of being a follower of Christ? Would you help me live up to the gospel today, to make the name of Christ known today in all that I do? That the worth of the gospel, the worth of the life and death and resurrection of the Son of God would be seen in your life that day. Paul prays that there would be a worthiness in their lives. And then he adds to that, that there would be a completeness in their work. He says, I want you to be worthy of his calling, and, the end of verse 11, you may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So Paul deals with two things here in that last part of verse 11. He deals with their desires and their doing. Their desires and their doing. He, he says, may you fulfill every good desire that you have. Every gospel longing that the Lord has placed in your heart, may you fulfill it. May the delight of your heart be realized. And then he says, and may every work of faith by his power be done as well. So, so Paul looks on the inside and he looks on the outside. 
Again, Paul is not uh, saying that there's not physical things, action things that we shouldn't be praying for. He reminds us of that here, that every work of faith that is done by his power. But this, again, is all in the, uh, the, the understanding under the umbrella of a spiritual focus, especially of eternity being in view. That our desires would be eternal ones and not earthly ones. That our labors would be for an eternal reward and not an earthly reward. So here's a simple way that you might pray this prayer. Lord, would you let me work today in light of eternity? Lord, would you let me not lay up treasures here on earth today, but to build treasures in heaven where neither wrath, where neither uh, moth nor rust or thieves break in and enter and steal? Would you let me labor with an eternal perspective? Would you let the desires of my heart not be earthly, but eternal? This is what Paul is praying for the believers in Thessalonica. He's seen spiritual growth, and he longs to see even more. So he prays from an eternal perspective that their lives would be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel and their work would bear fruit into eternity. Now, Paul breaks his prayer when we get to verse 12. There's, there's kind of an independent clause that's thrown in there. But what I want you to see at the end of verse 12, that last phrase, it goes with his prayer. He says, I'm praying that you would um, that God would make you worthy of his calling, that you would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And then go to the end of verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, here's the fuel that will let that happen in your life. Again, Paul is not praying that the believers in Thessalonica would just try harder. He's praying they would know the grace of God greater. That God's grace would be in operation in their lives so that they would have eternal desires and do eternal work and their lives would be worthy of the eternal gospel of the Son of God. Paul rightly understands and prays that all that they do would be done in full dependency upon God. He says, it's God who may make this happen. And it's God who will do this by his power and according to his grace. So a wonderful way that we can pray as we look at Paul's example here is to, to pray that God's grace would be in operation in our lives. That we would know that grace and let that grace shape who we are and what we do. Paul says in Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21, his, his testimony it says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul lived his life by God's grace. He wasn't trying to earn God's favor. Jesus had done that. He was simply captured by the grace that had given that favor to him through the gospel. And that shaped his life and his actions and his focus in everything that he did. And then that brings us to the third part of Paul's prayer. We've seen his approach, we've seen his asking, and now uh, we end with his aim. 
What did Paul ultimately want to get to? This is verse 12. So that. This is what Paul is shooting for. This is the bullseye. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Paul's prayer with an eternal perspective was ultimately aimed at the glory of the Savior. Paul says, I'm praying that in this way, in these things, the Lord Jesus would be glorified in you. That he would be on display in you. And if we live this way with this eternal perspective, with eternal desires and doing eternal work, I'm telling you, that's a great witness to Jesus Christ. Because this world is living for here and now. Not then and there. Because if they understood what was coming then and there, they would change what they were doing here and now. Paul's told us there's retribution that is coming for them. But there's vindication coming for us. So let's live this way so that the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in your life. And then he adds to that, that you would be glorified in him. This is Paul speaking of the glorification of the saint. Not that we're made much of, but that as we live this way, we're progressing in our sanctification still. This is what Paul began with, his approach. I see spiritual things happening in your life, and I thank God for that. But guess what? If you'll live this way, there'll be more things happening in your life. And ultimately, one day, when he comes again, we'll realize the fullness of that glorification. In Romans 8, Paul gives that golden chain of salvation. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Paul has dealt with their calling. He's dealt with their justification. And now he says, in this same manner, you will be glorified. Not that you'll be exalted, but that you'll become like him. And on that day when we see him, John says, we'll be like him. That's what we look forward to. That's what we long for. And Paul says to that end, that's what we pray for as well. So as we look at Paul's prayer tonight in 2 Thessalonians, bring his eternal perspective to your prayer also. Let's pray tonight.